Hello, and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm Peggy Hughes. On this episode, we continue our series of edited highlights from this year's festival, and we doff our caps to the season by delving into the fascinating and tangentially Halloween-themed world of witches and graveyards with authors Alice Tarbuck and Peter Ross. But don't worry, there's nothing to be scared of. We start off with Alice Tarbuck, who discusses her new book that challenges some of our preconceptions about witches. The wonderfully titled A Spell in the Wild, A Year and Six Centuries of Magic. The following is an edited excerpt from our Wigtown Book Festival 2020 event with Chair Hannah Trorathan. I want to start by asking about Scotland. In the book, you very much recount a lot of folklore and history around witches and kind of general kind of Scottish folklore. Was that a particular starting point for the book or did it emerge as you were researching it? Witches are, in a lot of ways, a kind of phenomenon unique to the global West. That's not to say that lots of other people don't practice magic around the world um, and might call it witchcraft, but the kind of witchcraft that I'm looking at tends not to be the indigenous folk practices of other global traditions, but tends to be kind of Western. I suppose there's an extent to which I found as I wrote this that there wasn't room to contain you know, all of American witchcraft, all of which is a really different kind of rich history, and all of kind of English witchcraft, which again is really, really different. Outside of Germany, the most individuals persecuted for witchcraft in a single country happened in Scotland. You know, historically, we know that King James was very obsessed, I think you might say, with with witchcraft. He wrote demonology. He became very concerned about threat to his power and obviously kind of historically with like literature as well you see this kind of we see Shakespeare talking about witches in Macbeth and actually you recount particular moments which relate to to King James and this very local history of witches could you talk a little bit more about that? King James was the son of Mary Queen of Scots and was James the sixth of Scotland and James the first of England so he was a monarch ruling over a newly United Kingdom that knew that although James was a good Protestant, his mother had been a staunch Catholic. So James's power, especially in the beginning of his reign, was extremely unstable. And James, of course, was living at a time when Protestantism was establishing power and being challenged a bit across Europe. So the witch trials, in a lot of ways, which run loosely parallel to the Spanish Inquisition as well, are are kind of part of a period of cracking down on folk customs, on leftover Catholic bits, depending on where you are in Europe, on kind of cementing state control. And that was done through targeting vulnerable people and making an example of them. There is something that we really overlook in our contemporary society, which is that the threat of Catholicism was often figured as the devil being a real thing, often aligned with the Pope, who could walk among people and corrupt them. The devil was as much a fact of life as the wind or the rain or God. And I think that we forget that Catholicism often became synonymous in Britain and in Western Europe with devilry around this time. So the witch trials are both the kind of genocidal act of re-establishing patriarchal control over women seeming to break social norms, and, and some men, of course, and also the absolutely determined kind of hysterical fear of Catholicism. And James, particularly given his uneasy rule over this newly united kingdom, was not 
secure and was convinced always that people were trying to kill him, both by non-occult means, by plots and poisonings, but also by less tangible occult means. And one of the things that we have to remember is that at the beginning of the witch trials, witches were not executed for witchcraft, they were executed for heresy. They were Mm. executed for crimes against God and the king. So heresy and witchcraft have this really fascinating, very closely interlinked relationship. A large part of that relates to James I and, and the idea that it is heretical to attempt harm against the king or the state or one's kind of godly community, essentially. So that's kind of where we we get the beginning of the witch hysteria in Scotland. That's so fascinating. And I think there's a really, for me, really shocking statistic in the book, which is about the kind of broader European witch trials that over or around 50,000 women were killed during this period, which is very much about exerting control, re-establishing a new status quo. Alice, do you want to read from the section in the book about the North Berwick witch trials? Yes, of course. So this is from the chapter which is about the weather more broadly. So let me take you to 1590s North Berwick and a little square of grass which is now outside the bird sanctuary. There is also a little green tucked into a diamond of space by the sea. Exactly the sort of place one might picnic on a fine day. Or, as Agnes Sampson said, in front of a room of judges in 1590, the sort of green on which 200 witches would gather together to consort with the devil himself. They almost certainly did not. 200 people would barely fit on that little green. But Agnes Sampson had been tortured horrendously at the king's command at the old toll booth in Edinburgh. First, she was disfigured by the shaving off of all her body hair. And next, she was placed in a torture device called a scold's bridle, or a witch's bridle, as it came to be known. This iron headgear had four sharp prongs, which forced her mouth open and her tongue down. It was a humiliation tool used to punish publicly women who were outspoken or nagged. It was considered a mirror punishment, a form of torture designed to poetically mirror the accused's crimes. It was common in Scotland, especially used on women on trial for witchcraft, the apex of outspoken womanhood. Additionally, Agnes Sampson was deprived of sleep and chained to a wall. She suffered a litany of damages and tortures. Then she was brought up in front of the king himself, whose death she was accused of seeking and made to confess. 6,000 men and women, although the vast majority were women, are recorded as having been executed during the Scottish witch trials. Because of the way court records were kept, especially in the Highlands, those numbers are probably higher. Many and many more who were not executed, suffered torture. What is remarkable about the North Berwick witch trials is both the severity of the torture and the weather crime. The crimes that Agnes and her peers were accused of were unusual, being both heretical and occult in nature. Plots against royalty were not uncommon, and there were many who were opposed to James's rule. He was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, a Catholic, and there were rumours and intrigues surrounding him. 
Most plots were straightforward treason. But James, obsessed by a fear of murder and the occult, was always suspicious of foul play and his enemies engaging witches to bring about his death. It is perhaps strange that King James ordered the North Berwick witch trials when two witches had already confessed to storm raising and been burned in Denmark. After those accused of storm raising were executed, why did James feel the need to accuse, try and kill further witches in Scotland? Such is the mystery of witchcraft. Anyone or no one could have raised the storm. More than a hundred witches were tried for this storm raising. In Agnes Sampson's confession, the theatrics of storm raising are laid bare. As the king sailed for home, Sampson said, the swell of witches took a cat and christened it and afterward bound to each part of that cat the chiefest parts of a dead man and said cat was conceived into the midst of the sea by these witches. The high drama of this spell, as Sampson recounts it, is extraordinary. It is intensely physical and deeply shocking. There is also a visceral imagery to the spellcraft, which delights in despoiling corpses and making a mockery of the Christian rite of baptism. The perversion of the natural order, men denied burial, cats brought into the fold of the faithful and then drowned, is highly dramatic. Only such foul actions, under the instruction of the devil himself, could hope to overthrow someone as powerful as a king. Indeed, Sampson, in her confession, attributes the spell's failure to the king's religious faith. The strength of his holiness and the veracity of his divine appointment are being directly pitted against the power summoned by the witches, seeking to depose him through corrupting the natural order of things. It strikes me when we talk a lot about witches and witchcraft that historically men did quite a lot of the writing about this, but it was in fact women who were the accused. And it happens until quite recently when we think about Alistair Crowley and others who've been writing about Wiccan practice that has been very much led by men. When you were researching, how did these women's voices sort of appear? How did you want to interpret them and give them a platform in the book? So this is really interesting. And it starts with this historic disjuncture between women accused of practicing witchcraft over here and magic and the occult kind of generally over here. And one of the really fascinating things, of course, is that the women accused of witchcraft who were tried and often executed, there is no evidence that any of them were witches in the way that we'd understand them. They were women accused of spurious crimes and executed. However, there were lots and lots of magical practitioners throughout history. And we see this as early, well, we see this kind of in a pre-Christian way hugely, but we see this in a Christian context in the medieval period where we have things like the Key of Solomon manuscript and, and very Christian people who wished to kind of summon entities or, or work with the occult. John Dee, who was an advisor to Elizabeth I, believed that angels could send him messages and he, and he wrote them down. So we have this real divide between women who were witches who got their power from 
the devil. So they had no power. They were only conduits of satanic power. And men, usually, who believed that they could commune with certain spirits and summon the occult. So it's very difficult to pick out women's voices among all of this. And as you say, so in the 1950s, when the Witchcraft Act is repealed, contemporary Wicca, if you like, begins to be founded by Gerald Gardner. Gerald Gardner gives this fascinating account of how he became initiated by a, a coven in the New Forest, mm. who are described as mostly women, and they're all, they all practice naked, of course, <laughs> um, some salaciousness, and but it's not the women who are writing this stuff down, it's the men. And so one of the things you have to do when you're kind of reclaiming occult voices throughout history is sort through everything really, really finely until you find any women's voices and then see what they're saying. And it's been really fascinating because some of the most dominant voices in witchcraft have also been really been kind of widely discredited. For example, there's lovely, lovely Margaret Murray, who was a social anthropologist in the 1950s. And she believed that all witches who'd been tried at the witch trials were part of a continuous secret European witch cult. So they really were witches and they'd been secretly practicing witchcraft since like the Neolithic. Um, <laughs> and it was one of those, you can imagine her like pinboard with ribbons, like in a, in a CSI episode, like joining everything up. And unfortunately it's been completely discredited. There is no evidence of a secret continuous witchcraft cult in Europe or anywhere else that predates Christianity. And, and if it's there, it's very hidden, but it's almost certainly not there. And so poor Margaret Murray, who has, given us in her book a very, very kind of coherent history of witchcraft is also just wrong. I think it makes it very difficult to find these women's voices and to kind of uphold them because we also have to apply a lot of critical rigour mm. as we do to the men's voices because I will tell you something, a lot of writing in the, on the occult is extremely sexist, biologically essentialist nonsense and has been since like 1400. So a lot of it is, is kind of working out where everybody stands and what everybody's kind of skin in the game is, if you like, what, what, you know, what people are trying to sell you or persuade you of, and then kind of working, working from there. And we've had a few questions in. Our first question is, given our experience of 2020 so far, how can magic and ritual help us through challenging times? These are the most challenging times. And magic and ritual, I think, can really help us by grounding us so by bringing us back to ourselves when we are so overwhelmed by the 24-hour news cycle and by the kind of relentless events that have threatened to overwhelm so many of us this year. And also, magic as it is defined in, in the book at least, is the exertion of the will out in the world to weave into the world and work and effect change. And I think at the moment most of feel we don't have control over things like a global pandemic. So working small rituals is a really helpful way of building toward a practice that helps us feel that we have some agency in the world, however small. Many thanks to Alice Tarbuck and to Chair Hannah Trevarthen. Alice's book, A Spell in the Wild, is available from the bookshop on our website. Head on over to wigtownbookfestival.com. From Witches to Graveyards now, Peter Ross talks to Chair Danny Garavelli about his exquisitely titled book, A Tomb with a View, The Stories and Glories of Graveyards. Here we join the discussion from this year's festival when Danny and Peter discuss what happened to the graves of those people who society deemed outcasts. 
So I was wondering if we could talk a bit about, as you know, it's my favourite chapter, Unmarked, which is about the outcast dead, isn't it? And uh, it begins in Crossbones. Yeah. For a bit of context, that's where the um, medieval... It's the resting place of medieval sex workers, isn't it, who were uh, licensed by the church but then found unworthy of being buried in consecrated ground. Is that right? And that yeah. makes me really angry every time I think about it. Does it make you angry? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is in the South Bank of London. So it's just it's just kind of Southwark, Bankside, that, that kind of area. These women were, as you say, they were licensed by the Bishop of Winchester. Now, I don't know whether that means that they were granted the authority to work or whether there was any kind of financial kickback to the church. But in any case, the church certainly um, allowed them to be uh, sex workers in that area of London, which is out with the city of London at that time. So it was a kind of red light district, kind of anything goes kind of area of London. But when those women died, they, as you say, they weren't allowed to be buried within consecrated ground because of the way they had lived their lives, and neither were their children. Lately, the Church of England, or rather Southwark Cathedral within the Church of England, have decided that they've got something to apologise for there. So every year, every summer, on the feast of Mary Magdalene, the Southwark Cathedral processes out, with, led by the Dean of, of Southwark and the, the clergy and all their kind of finery, processes through the streets of Southwark to the Crossbones graveyard and, and says sorry to those women. Which is a very moving thing, and I think I think a, I think a, a just act, really. But the Crossbones Graveyard is um, in the medieval period, in the Elizabethan period, it was it was it was the resting place for those sex workers. But then later on, in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was more generalised um, burial ground for the poor of the area. And you wouldn't know it now if you walked around Southwark, but at that time. Southwark was really, really poor. It was one of the, the, the poorest areas of London. You know, so people that couldn't afford to be buried in, in kind of grander places would be buried in unmarked graves in crossbones. And then it was kind of rediscovered in the 1990s when they, they built an extension to the Jubilee Line. They, they did sort of archaeology there and they found all these bodies. They think there's 15,000 people buried in quite a small space. So you can imagine they're, they're kind of crammed in. And these were people with... You can see from their bones, they had dietary deficiencies, they had rickets, they had other diseases, the, ch the coffins were cheap. It's traditionally been not a great place to be buried, but it's become this sort of gathering point for anyone that feels themselves to be an outcast or a misfit or a freak and who kind of owns those terms, if you like. So I know people, people kind of go there and remember people um, that they've lost you know, to, to kind of suicide or they've been maybe murdered. Or, or they feel they can't go and remember them in a church or in a kind of regular graveyard, but they can go there to remember them. And they have um, every month a kind of a, a ritual there, a vigil, to sort of celebrate outcasts of all kinds. Mm -hmm. So there's the incredible John Crow, isn't there? And um, I was wondering if you could read a little bit, because that would be a good way to get the sense of just how kind of wild and <laughs> yeah. th those vigils are. Absolutely. So John Crow is the person who, more than anyone else, has been responsible for, for making crossbones this, this kind of place for celebrating um, outcasts and it's an incredible space you really must see it it's, it's this weird post-apocalyptic kind of garden space he's called john constable but he he's got this sort of pen name john crow and he's a, he's a fascinating character so i'll just read a wee bit about him and about his final vigil at crossbones because he was he was giving up leading them at this point so this, this took place last year welcome to crossbones said john crow Four months had passed since the Feast of Mary Magdalene. It was November, the 23rd of November. That detail is important. Crossbones vigils are always held on the 23rd of the month, and this was the 23rd anniversary of the night when the writer John Constable 
had a vision of what he calls the goose, part Mary Magdalene, part medieval prostitute, part muse, who dictated to him a long verse poem called the Southwark Mysteries. He was back then in a kind of trance, having taken the biggest dose of LSD he had ever risked before or since. But it wasn't a hedonistic act. He had been seeking revelation and found himself wandering the streets of Southwark in the small hours, visiting its ancient sites, the ruins of Winchester Palace, the cathedral and so on, before fetching up at the heavy gate to what, at that time, was a patch of waste ground covered in rubbish. The name Crossbones came to him in his vision, he says, and it was only later that he realised that this was the historic site of the graveyard. In that moment he sensed that there was something special here. It seemed a sacred place that ought to be reclaimed. Now that reclamation has been the great work of his life. In 2000, the year 2000, the Southwark Mysteries was performed at the Globe Theatre and at the Cathedral. It's quite a challenging piece, let us say, the Dean had told me. We had never had a devil with a huge phallus walking into the cathedral before. That caused a few eyebrows to be raised. More important, perhaps, than that acceptance by the religious and arts establishment is the way in which the graveyard itself has become the focus of ceremony. Beginning in 1998, each Halloween has been marked by a so-called vigil at Crossbones, and from the 23rd of June 2004, these became monthly. Led by Constable in his John Crow urban magician persona, these have a curious ambience, part utterly sincere magical rite, part playful bohemian happening, part performance art knees up. David Bowie, in death, was named Angel of the Outcast at a vigil. This was appropriate, as his misfit grace, his blurring of gender and sexuality, is very crossbones, but it also gave everyone the chance of a jolly good sing-along to Starman. Constable, though, was now 67 and had not of late been in good health, and he felt that his particular vision of crossbones is what he calls a magical work, and it was time to bring it to a close. This, then, would be his final vigil, which was why at 7pm around 300 of us were standing on the gate, standing on the street outside the graveyard. The long, tall metal gate was locked. It was covered in beads and photos and dolls and shoes and flowers, but mostly in ribbons and on which were written the names of the departed. It was a barrier, a threshold, the living on one side, the dead on the other. One day, of course, we would all be on the other side of such a gate. For now, we looked in and wondered. The air smelled of incense and gin and a little dope. The shard gleamed hard and bright in the London night. I wondered what the people up there would make of us down here, and for that matter, what the skeletons below our feet would make of us up here, flesh-clad and expectant. Spirits of the dead, spirits of the living, kindred, said John Crow. Welcome to this, the 186th Crossbones Vigil. He was wearing a black velvet coat and a broad smile. We come here to remember the outcast dead, to remember our own lost loved ones, and to remember the living, all the outcasts, the street people, those with drug and alcohol issues, 
The sex workers, whether they are the victims of exploitation or choose what they do freely, we honour all of these people from the edges of society. What followed was extraordinary. Poetry, music, readings from the Southwark Mysteries, Morris dancers in top hats, face paint and black and purple coats roared and strutted and clashed staffs to the sound of pipes and drums. The folk punk musician Frank Turner performed The Graveyard of the Outcast Dead, a song inspired by this place. Raga Woods, an environmental activist in her late 70s, wearing a headdress of scarves and ivy, called out, We're connecting with the people whose bones were unearthed and who led us to be in this place. Hallelujah! Jules Allen, a mild-looking chap with a taste for serendipity, riffed on the significance of the number so important to crossbones. Uh, the number of years that Yorick's skull lay buried before it was discovered by Hamlet, he asked the crowd. Twenty-three, came the reply. The number of hundred thousand stones in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Twenty-three. The height and feet that the tidal Thames rises and falls in central London every twelve hours. Twenty-three. And so on. To be in the midst of this felt at times like participating in some sort of benign hippie death cult. It was fun, but never frivolous. At a previous vigil, someone had read out their sister's suicide note, and that was as much in keeping with the spirit of crossbones as the songs and laughter and chanting. This is a place of healing and tolerance, where the poor were once dumped is now rich with meaning. And it feels important, in the midst of London wealth, that there should be such experiences that money can't buy. That's brilliant. And there's a lovely bit, I think, where you quote John Crow as saying it's about seeing the beauty and brokenness. Um, it's occurred to me that quite a lot of the cemeteries that you cover are quite broken places. Do you think that's part of the appeal for people who roam in them? The way they look? The brokenness, the kind of think, sense of ruin. I think so. I think, I think certainly aesthetically it is. I think, you know, the British, going back to the Victorians, uh, uh, to the Romantics, I should say, have had a, a taste for ruins, you know, Tintern Abbey and all that. And I think that's, that's still within us. And as you wander through these places, I think an, an angel that's a bit broken with, with ivy growing up her is more attractive than a pristine angel somehow and more identifiable, you know, if you've, if you've lived a bit and also very Instagrammable. You know, I think that's part of the appeal of cemeteries. One of the reasons why tombstone tourism has become a thing, I think, is because we're all carrying around a computer library in our back pockets. You can see a name on a stone and you can whip out your phone and you can look that person up and you can begin to find out something about their lives. So that, that moment of wondering about them and the moment of finding out about them is, 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 much, is much closer together. Mm -hmm. And also you can take pictures of these things, of these kind of ivy-covered angels, and put them on Instagram or put them on Twitter or wherever you wish to, and other people can, can admire them too. So you can kind of share your wonder at these places now in a way that, that might not have been possible in quite the same way in previous times. But do you think there's something psychological going on beyond that that makes graveyards particularly appealing to people perhaps right now? I think so. I mean, certainly I found... I mean, I, I'm in Cuthcart Cemetery a lot anyway. I used to walk my um, youngest boy to school through there in the morning. But, but during the period of, of lockdown, when it was at its most intense, and maybe again, you know, and when you could only really go out and exercise once a day, that's where myself and my family would go. We would go 
and, and walk within um, Cathcart Cemetery. And I found that there was more people than usual in there. And I think partly that was because the parks, the public parks, were very busy. So it was difficult to kind of socially distance within a public park. Much easier to get your own space within um, an old cemetery. But also I think there is, as you suggest, something deeper kind of psychologically and emotionally. You know, you are surrounded by the dead. And you think that might be a bit on the nose at a time of a global pandemic. But in fact, I think it's quite comforting. There's people in there that would have died of the Spanish flu. There's people there that have gone through depressions, whether they be economic depressions or personal depressions, moments of, of kind of national crises and challenge. And I think there's a sense of solace to be had in a graveyard. I think of it in terms of vaccination. You, know, you expose yourself to a particle of that darkness and therefore you do not yourself sicken with it. But also a feeling of community with the dead, a feeling of neighbourliness. You know, I think a feeling that they've been through this. They are us and they've been through it. And so you almost feel that arm around your shoulder and a, an encouraging word in your ear. So I think, I think probably that's going on perhaps unconsciously, mm -hmm. for most people too. I think that's absolutely true. I know so many people who have been walking in graveyards during the lockdown. Do you want to, because it's a nice way to round off, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the wedding at Arnesdale that you... Yeah, so um, I went to four funerals and a wedding in the course of writing this book. So I was allowed to attend uh, the wedding of a couple called Sean and Liz at Arnos Vale in, in Bristol. And I went there on Halloween last year. Now, they get a lot of goths at Arnos Vale for their weddings, as you might imagine. People that have the rings brought forward by wolfhounds or by an owl or something like that, you know. But, but Sean and Liz um, are, are just a regular couple. So, yeah, so they allowed me to attend their wedding, which was an outdoor wedding. Liz was very worried about the weather. She'd been checking the weather, like, for the kind of past Halloween several years back. And they actually were lucky with the weather. They got a break in the rain. And so they had a lovely um, outdoor ceremony. And they were going to have the reception in one of the chapels, beautiful old chapel, actually above the old crematoria, which is, the, the ovens are still down there, which is incredible to think. I mean, guests can kind of go down and look at these. So they had their outdoor wedding, which was beautiful. And then they came down the hill past the gravestones. She was wearing white and green wellies. And he was looking great in a kind of tweed, blue tweed suit. They came down the hill past the gravestones towards the chapel, passed through a kind of honour guard of their friends and family who threw confetti over them, rose petal. And I, I watched these rose petals as they kind of drifted past Liz's wellies and Sean's brogues onto the grave of a Victorian man and wife who had died, um, obviously, in the 19th century. And I just thought that, for me, was the perfect symbol, confetti in a graveyard. It, sh it shows that a, a, a kind of... Um, a, grave, a graveyard is not an inappropriate place to get married. Those people in the 19th century had had their life and their love together, and now it was Sean and Liz's turn. And it was really the circle of life and the circle of love, love wasn't it? And, and the circle symbolised by the wedding ring. So that was a, it was, for me, a, a kind of wonderful, uh, joyous uh, moment, and, and it kind of brought the, the book full circle, if you like. Many thanks to Peter Ross and to Chair Danny Garavelli. Do consider buying a copy of Peter's book, A Tomb with a View, The Stories and Glories of Graveyards, from our website. And of course, don't forget you can watch both of these events and more in their entirety over on our YouTube channel. But that's it for this episode. 
Many thanks for joining us again, if it's again, first time, if it's the first time. We're glad to have you with us. Take care for now. Bye-bye.